0: Please be seated. Good morning. Um, Once again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Buddy Killian. I was uh, up here last week talking about our capital campaign, and I just wanted to give a report. Uh, Over the last week, we managed to raise just a little north of $1,000, so praise God. That was a pretty good start. Um, With our matching funds campaign, that puts us a little bit north of $26,000 for our goal of 90,000. We have about six weeks left. The campaign ends on December 5th and um, the matching funds campaign runs through Thanksgiving. So every dollar given between now and Thanksgiving up to $25,000 is going to be matched by some generous families uh, in our, in our, in our church. So I just want to ask you again to just be prayerful and thoughtful about the opportunity that lies before us uh, the, the, the campaign is specifically designed to raise funds for our boiler, which absolutely needs to be replaced. We don't think we're going to make it through another winter. And then also for either the renovation or the replacement of the handicapped stairs. So um, those are the two things that we've identified as, as goals that we need to, as a family, uh, direct our funds towards uh, and uh, keep our church operational. So I just would ask you again to just be prayerful, thoughtful, and um, uh, generously give uh, so that uh, we can continue to function as a family here. Thank you.
1: Well, good morning. So we've um, kind of really, if we can bring that down a little bit. We're starting a new series, as you can kind of see behind me, and as Connor referenced, I can't believe this God stuff. So let me kind of lay the foundation of where this started. A little bit ago, we were talking, Connor, Rich, and I, and um, it came out that this individual that we had known by the name of Joshua Harris, and he was somewhat of a fairly well-known individual in Christian circles, had decided to step away from Christianity and had started to communicate, I no longer identify myself as a follower of Jesus. Now Joshua Harris was fairly well known at this point in time. He had been serving as a pastor for many years. He had also uh, written a book called I've Kissed Dating Goodbye. He wrote that book as a young man and and in that process became fairly well known in Christian circles. Kind of did that Christian uh, circuit writing thing of speaking at various conferences and doing his various things and became fairly well known in Christian circles for the position and stand he took. So as we were talking about this, then uh, in that conversation it kind of bubbled up and it surfaced that there were also some other significant individuals over the years who have been identified in the Christian community who have stepped out. And there was actually a coin or phrase uh, coined in Christian circles called deconstruction. And so as you kind of think about this, this is one of those things that's been happening particularly in the church over the last few years, some of that also and specifically has been happening in the music industry. So as you listen to music and you listen to some various Christians as they sing, some of them have slowly shifted in their music. So they sing about still good things, but they don't always sing exactly about who God is and their love for the Lord and their worship of the Lord, and that process has slowly shifted. And um, now, one of the books that I read um, was, a guy, was from a guy named John Cooper, and he's the lead singer from a band called Skillet. I would strongly encourage you, yes, we, we like that, right? And um, so it may not be your cup of tea as far as music is concerned, um, but some people like his music, a lot of people like his music, and um, he, wrote, uh, he wrote a book called Awake and Alive to the Truth, or to Truth. I would strongly encourage you to get his book and read it. It's not very long. It's a, it's a good book. I'm going to use a couple of parts of that from our conversation this morning. But one of the things I want you to recognize and also note, I'm going to go to a, a, a place in Second uh, Timothy. Look at Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Because one of the things I want to identify is this whole conversation that we're having, it's not new. This really is not a new conversation. It has bubbled up in maybe a slightly different way that catches our attention with a, a new term that we're applying to it that catches our attention. But one of the things I want you to notice here, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says this, Make every effort to come to me soon, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. I want you to recognize and I want you to understand that people since the beginning of church history have stepped away from the faith. Hebrews will also go into this and and deal with it a little bit more, and we're going to get to Hebrews, and we're going to walk through Hebrews. We've shifted that. We thought we were probably going to do that in January. We've shifted. We're going to do something different in January, and we're going to do Hebrews after Easter. But as you look at Hebrews, and also as you look at other areas, there's history and evidence of people who have embraced, or seem to have embraced the Lord, seem to have engaged in faith with Christ and then have stepped away. Today, some of those individuals are somewhat well-known and the way our culture functions and the way popularity and, and celebrity works. Some of that filters through and rumbles through our culture a little bit differently. And so sometimes it's a little more obvious or it's a little more seen because of that whole celebrity culture that we seem to live in today. So these, for these next few weeks, we're going to walk through some of these issues about deconstruction. Now, I want us to walk through these issues of deconstruction because I think they impact us in two significant ways. First of all, if you're a Christian, you probably know someone who at one point in your life, someone has walked away from the faith or someone has created distance. And so probably all of us, in some ways, know someone. And probably some of us have family members who have at one point in their journey seemed to embrace or seemed to acknowledge Christ and then kind of took a step back or maybe faded out. So as you engage in conversations, we want to kind of lay some foundations. We want to talk about some structures and some biblical frameworks and some other thought processes that might help you as you engage in conversation with family or loved ones who have stepped away or slipped away to re-engage that conversation and maybe help to re-engage them in issues of faith and to maybe reconnect them with Jesus. But also in the same conversation... The issues that are shaping and driving some of these more prominent individuals to step out and step away from faith are also the, some of the very values, the very principles, the very arguments, the very things that our culture is looking at and our culture is debating and talking about that have prompted them to not engage with Jesus at all. See, some people will talk to them and then say, "Well, I'm—I don't—I'm not going to put my faith and trust in Jesus, and I'm not going to put my faith and trust in Jesus because of this, because of this, or because of this." And we're going to touch those. This is a little bit later, but they—they they say I'm not going to do that, and they're the, the, the same arguments, they're the same conversations, they're the same issues. And so we're going to walk through those things and kind of talk about those things and, and work through them so that maybe as we have conversations with individuals, one, we are equipped with some better answers, but then also we're, we are attuned so that as the conversations take place, we can speak into people's lives in constructive, positive ways. So before we jump into it, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll start to walk through some things. Father, I say thank you very much for your goodness to us. I thank, thank you very much for your word. I thank you very much that you give us a context and a setting in which we as followers of Jesus can sit down and have a conversation about what's going on in the world around us and what's swirling around us in our culture, where we can actually kind of look at it, talk about it, wrestle through it, and then figure out how that how then we can... As your followers, believers in Jesus, engage our culture, but also stand up for and defend our faith in credible and meaningful ways. Father, we ask that you would just guide our time. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm going to cough. Did not want to do that in your ear. Uh, So, as we kind of walk through these things, at first blush, I think there are probably two things that speak heavily to the, the, the journey or two philosophies that seem to speak into this whole conversation of deconstruction and that shape our culture. I don't know about you, but I enjoy singing and I enjoy joining with the music team as we praise our Lord, but sometimes it scratches my throat. You guys get to sit and just listen, but I have to get up and talk, and so I have to wet the whistle a little bit to keep on going. So there's a couple of areas, and these are two of the things that I thought that John Cooper dealt with well, so I'm kind of pulling some things from him and some of the definition a little bit here from him. So he talks about two things, and I agree with him in this whole conversation. There's two philosophies that kind of underlay some of the tension that's going on, and that as if we're being students of our culture, if we're kind of paying attention to what's going on and listening to what's happening in our culture, there are two major philosophies that are taking place. The first is postmodernism. Probably have heard this, we've talked about this, and you heard, you hear this language, you hear these words used in our culture. Postmodernism, basically, what this says is there is no objective truth. There's just no objective truth. Therefore, there is also not an objective false or an objective error. Now, we will hear people in a conversation, and as we have a conversation with them, they will say things, and we disagree. But as they engage a conversation, we'll come into the conversation where it says, well, we believe there is a God. And they say, well, I don't believe you're, tr- you're true. I don't believe you're right. I think that's false. There's no objective truth. This flows right out of the heels and right from aspects of evolution. We're going to touch on that in a moment. So but we, you have the conversation, but there's nothing objectively true. There's, there's nothing outside the context of, of, of what you see, touch, and feel. What you can scientifically maybe look at and test and measure that says something is true or something is false. So there's no objective truth. Connected to this whole conversation, then if there's no objective truth, there's no objective morality. So thing, there is nothing that's inherently wrong. And there would be nothing then that would be inherently right. Because if there's no objective truth, there's no objective right or wrong. So, murder. Pick on that. That's the, a that's the big one that we can talk about. It's not inherently right or wrong. It just happens. It's wrong for society to take place because it's disruptive to society and it hurts or damages society. But... Animals walk around and eat other animals. We collect crops, which are living things, and we eat them. So what differentiates us from those things is the worldview, is the thought process. One living thing is consuming another living thing. One living thing is taking another living thing and using it for something else. The whole idea of objective truth is that there is none, and the whole idea of objective morality is that there is none. Now, as a Christian, we would look at that and we would wrestle with that. But the reality of our culture right now is that these are key values that our culture has embraced. These are key underlying values at this point in time that have shaped our culture. So we don't necessarily have to like it, but it's kind of the reality of what's taking place. There's a second philosophy that flows in our culture. And that philosophy would be relativism. Have you heard someone, well, it's all relative. It's all relative. Relativism would go slightly different from postmodern. It mostly agrees with postmodern, but each of us can have our own truth. So truth is fluid. Everyone can have their own truth, and truth depends on one's perspective, one's one's uh, culture, one's tribe, and we're going to talk about the whole issue of tribe stuff at a later point. But it's fluid. I I've shared this story in the past and it's and and it's I was early in ministry. I was probably about 8 years in ministry, 9 years in ministry, and I shared this story about how we allowed our our fellowship hall when I was pastoring in Pittsburgh to be used for a bunch of extras in, a, in the shooting of a movie. And I, and I still remember that conversation with a young woman standing, sit, I'm sitting there, it's all night long, so I went over and sat with everybody to chit-chat, they're all, mostly people from the Pittsburgh area. And as I'm having this conversation with this young woman, she is describing God to me. But as she is describing God, she's not anywhere close to my understanding from the Bible of what God is like. It's kind of like she has cherry-picked different things out who God is and what she likes. And in the cherry-picking process, there's also some key distinctive things that she's excluded from her definition of who God is. So in a relative worldview, her truth is true. It's true for her. But in that same relative worldview, my truth is true for me. Now, when his book Cooper talks about the, he went back to the, to the appointment of one of our chief justices and when he was accused of, of, of raping or molesting a woman. And as he came to that whole conversation, he kind of unpacks that and he looks at us and he says, so this woman stands up and she says, this is my truth. And then they talk up, talk about the, the chief justice and they say, and this is his truth. And they try to compare the two different truths. And he says, time out. From my worldview, either what what he is being accused of did happen or didn't happen. It's not a question of one person's truth versus another person's truth. It's a question of, did this happen or didn't it happen? But in our culture today, We don't necessarily go back to the foundations of what took place because we're more concerned with people's feelings, people's thoughts, people's opinions. Therefore, they can have their own truth. It's all relative. Now, again, we may not like all of that, but these are the realities of what has shaped our culture. And so as people engage in our culture, people listen in our culture, and as people process how they're going to engage with life, these things influence and shape their thought process. For me, I go at least one step further. I might go two steps further back. I think personally, as we take this conversation back another step, I think it does have its origins in evolution. So I think you'll see it there. When we reject our origins in God, when everything is coincidence of evolution, I think it's only a matter of time before we get to postmodern or relativistic worldviews. See, if we are not created in the image of God, we don't have any more value than any other thing around We just happen to evolve further or differently than everything else. See, if evolution is true, we have no intrinsic value. Do you understand that? You are no different than a blade of grass, my dog Lincoln, or anything else you have no more significant intrinsic value than the fish that swim in the sea or the birds that fly in the air. If evolution is true. If evolution is true, then all that we have learned and all that we have been taught at different times about morality is a fiction. Because there would be no right and there would be no wrong. It would just be what is. So if evolution is true and everything is the coincidence of circumstances and time then there's no substance for morality and and reality in our lives except for whatever gets shaped and done by the whims of people or the whims of other creatures. Because God doesn't exist if evolution is true. Now again, we wrestle with that, we look at that, but you have to recognize our culture today is rapidly significantly shaped by an evolution we'll do. I think personally, some of this really kind of goes back a little bit further, because as we go back a little bit further, part of what was taking place is we were starting to disregard the first four le- first, four word, four, first four words in the Bible. We started to disregard, in the beginning, God. And so as people started to disregard the first four words, they then started to look for truth, they then started to look for meaning, they then start to look for significance, they then start to look for answers in all sorts of other places. And if we start to disregard in the beginning God, then that also radically then starts to affect how we react and how we respond to the rest of Scripture. Now, all of this is what's taking place in our culture. All of this is what's impacting and affecting the church. So as we wrestle in our culture, there are things happening in our culture where the church disagrees. And because the church does not conform to the framework of what our culture is saying, what takes place? You get canceled. You get crossed off. You get eliminated. You get dismissed. You get silenced. Why? Because we're not conforming, we're not validating, we're not supporting, we're not advocating for the various values and ideas and thoughts that are being presented today in our culture. I think it all goes back to the rejection of, in the beginning, God. Two passages of scriptures really stand out to me. And one is more looking to the future, but I think the essence of it is still presence today. And then the other talks about what has already been taking place. And I don't want to go back and kind of talk about all of the the surrounding components because we'll do that a little bit later. But I want to look at some of the language of how God is reacting or how God chooses to respond was taking place so let's go to second Thessalonians chapter two verses nine to eleven you have your Bible you have your your um, um, app on your phone or you want to follow on the screen we can do that and as i'm personally looking at this I recognize I will change the background next week we kind of thought the background would be cool and thought it would fit it kind of fits the i i can't believe this god stuff but as I'm looking at that i'm seeing that it's not as easy to read, so we'll, we'll, we'll tweak that for next week. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working. With every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie. And with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. Let me repeat that. They, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth, and so be saved. They rejected Jesus. They are perishing because they have rejected Jesus. Do you understand that? Now, people want to say, you're, you're, you hear this in our culture all the time. You do something about, oh, you're going to hell. <laughs> Don't you hear that? Oh, you lied to them? Oh, you're going to hell. You did that thing over there? I can't believe that. You're going to hell. No, people are not going to hell because they have done bad things, per se. They're going to hell ultimately because they've rejected Jesus. Now, because of sin... We have reaped the consequence of sin, and the consequence of sin is death. But God has provided a solution. God has provided an answer, and that answer is Jesus. And so people are destined to be free in eternity apart from God, but God has given that answer, and that answer is Jesus. But because people have chosen to reject Jesus, now the consequence of life is going to be fulfilled. But they have the option to avoid that, and the way to avoid that is through a relationship with Jesus. But what is taking place here is people have chosen to reject the love of God, they've chosen to reject the expression and communication of the love of God, which is Jesus. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. Do you ever ask yourself the question, how do people believe this stuff? Where is their brain? Where is their thinking? How in the world do they suck this up and believe it? Because God allows it. Because God allows them to be deceived and he sends delusion. Now, let's go on. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 goes into a bunch of other things that we'll deal with at a later point, and we'll come back to this and talk about this a little bit. Because this addresses some significant issues that are taking place in our culture and debate that's taking place in our culture. But I want you to hear an interplay with some words that take place three times in the context. It says, and so, but to lay the framework, it says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so there's truth that is being revealed, there's truth that is seen, there's truth that's being communicated, but people are choosing to suppress that truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. His For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made." pause for a second so part of what is being said here is that the creative work of god has revealed his divine nature it has revealed his power it has revealed his majesty so when you stand in the stars uh, you stand outside on a dark night and on a field void of light and you look up at the sky and you see the milky way people are kind of like whoa that's so beautiful that's amazing and of course the next thing they say is isn't evolution so cool No, the the evidence of there is that there's something of grandeur, there's something of majesty. Someone had to have made this. This is just amazing. Now, the reality also is that in so many ways, we live in an incredibly ugly world. And yet, as we look around our world, there is such also, at the same time, amazing beauty to see. And, And we see the intricacy of how things work. We see the intricacy of how things fit together and flow. And we kind of step back and are just in some ways stunned and amazed and say, wow, there's just got to be a God. There's got to be a God. A friend of mine was was in medical school, pre-med, far from God, didn't know God, considered himself to be an atheist. As he's going through medical school, he finally came to the perspective. He kindly came to this realization that there is a God because this just couldn't happen. And it started him on a journey to finding Christ. Why? Because the creative work, the creative nature of things, those things point to the reality that there is a God. And when people look at those things and they say, ah, it's not God, it's because they've intentionally started to choose to not acknowledge God. Why? Because they are suppressing the truth. But there's more to that. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, and this is the tension I want you to see, therefore God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. So the evidence of God is present. The majesty of God's creativeness is there. The evidence pointing to the creation serves as this big road sign that says, God is over here. Boop, boop, God is over here. Boop, boop, next exit, conversation with God. Exit over here, conversation with God. Notice, see, look. Why? They They blow it off, they dismiss it, they disregard. Why? Because they have suppressed the truth. They don't want to acknowledge the truth. And so in that process, God then delivers them over to the desires of their hearts. To, he delivers them over to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what, he had, what had been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Again, the continuation of that rejection the continuation of disregard and so what does god do god continues to turn them over god continues to release them and allow them to pursue those things that destroy them but those things also harden the heart it it, it blinds the eyes it deafens the ears For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The the men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so, so that they do what is not Right. You catch what's going on? Three times as we are wrestling through these verses and you see the progressive implications of those choices. And again, we're going to walk through these implications a little more in a couple weeks. But what I want you to see is this process. Man rejects God. God turns him over and says, pursue what you want, but it's going to destroy you. Man continues to reject God. And what does God? He continues to turn them over to those things that lead them astray. He continues to turn them over to those things that blind them, deafen them, and make them numb to who God is. Why? Because they keep on saying to God, I don't hear you, I don't hear you, I don't hear you, I don't see you, I don't see you, I don't see you. I want nothing to do with you. As I've thought about this, it's kind of like the process some of us have experienced. God says, okay, I'm not going to enable your choices, do what you want. You want to reject me, you want to disregard me, you don't want to listen to me. Go off on your own. Because you keep rejecting what I've offered, you keep on rejecting what I've communicated, you keep on disregarding what I'm trying to say. I think this is key in the conversation that takes place in our culture today as we wrestle through this. We have a culture, we live in a context where people keep saying, I don't need God. I'm not interested in having a relationship with God. I reject the whole idea that in the beginning, God. I just reject those four words. I don't think it's relevant. I don't think it's necessary. I believe in other things, and so God turns them over. One other set of verses stand out to me, and it's in Second Timothy, and it's just before Paul writes, but just before Paul says to Timothy, Demas has departed because he's in love with the world. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Now on my notes I think I may have gotten it wrong at least the notes I posted online I think I had verse chapter 2 its verse 3 but chapter 3 verse 16. Now, these are verses we have heard, and these are verses we've talked about at other times. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. These are key verses we will look at. And so as we come back again, we talk about the the credibility and the authority of the Word of God. This This is one of those verses we reference and again, I, I think one of the things we need to recognize is that there's going to be a tension. We'll talk about this in a little bit more in a second. But there's a tension here between God and the Word. But all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But here's something I want you to recognize. In, in your Bibles, what happens after... Verse 17. What happens? Work with me. What happens after verse 17? A new chapter begins. Right after verse 17, we go from chapter 3 to chapter 4. But here's the problem. Were the chapter headings and the references inspired? No. Now someone back in the corridors of time said, you know, it would be really helpful if we had chapters and verses so as we're looking for stuff and trying to find stuff, we can help each other find it more quickly. And and as, as far as an indexing tool is concerned, chapters and verses is incredibly helpful. Because even as we're having this conversation, I can say to you, turn to chapter, book, verse, chapter, and we can all get there right away. Instead of okay, I'd like you to turn to Timothy. If you kind of look at Paul's letter, oh, kind of down towards the end of the letter, maybe two or three paragraphs up. Okay, it's every five minutes. Okay, everyone, you kind of find you find it yet? Yeah, you find no. It helps us to get places quickly and easily. But here's the problem. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he didn't say, okay, Luke chapter 4. Didn't happen. He's continuing the conversation. There's no gap, there's no chapter, there's no verse. He's just continuing the conversation from verses 16 and 17. And he goes on. He says, I charge you, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead because of his appearing and his kingdom. He says this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And then he says these amazing things. It sounds almost exactly what he just said about what the word is about up above. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Now, rebuke and correct are slightly different words, but 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 correct and teach are the same, two of the same words he used up above. Just slightly nuanced different words for, for rebuke and encourage. But he's saying the same thing. He said, all scripture is useful for correcting, for rebuking, for training, and for instruction in righteousness. And then he comes, as he continues in the same breath, in the same context, Timothy, now I want you, since I've identified that the word is useful those things, Timothy, I want you to use the word, and I want you, through the word, to correct. I want you to instruct. I want you to teach. I want you to educate. I want you to speak into people's lives. Why? for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear they will turning away they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths We need to be students of the word. Now here's that tension I'm talking about. Andy Stanley talks about this and I really appreciate his wrestling match because he talks about the fact that the reality of who Jesus is is not dependent upon what someone believes about the word of God. And that's true. Jesus is a historical figure who lived and who died. Jesus is an individual who was born, who lived his life, who was crucified, and he rose again. Those things are true. And it's, and it's true and it's real regardless of whether someone wants to believe the word of God. Tracking with me so far? Can you agree with that? Okay, that doesn't dismiss what I'm about to say. There's not a, there's not a, I'm not going to drop a bomb and say, oh, it's not true. But we also have to recognize that the special revelation that God has given us to help us understand who He is, what He is like, and what He has done is the Word of God, it is the Bible. Both are vitally important. We don't have one without the other in reality. Because where do we hear about Jesus, and where is the message of Jesus, and where is the chronicling of Jesus' life and the chronicling of Jesus' history? It's in the Bible. It's in, the, in particular the first four books of the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. There's not another secular resource that reveals, walks through, and explains all of the issues about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why it's important for us to put our faith and trust in Jesus. It comes through the Bible. But when we start to doubt in the beginning God, it starts to throw shade and doubt and question on the rest of what the Bible says. Because if God isn't really real, did he really say? So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the word of God, is useful for correcting, for instruction, for training, and and preparing people in righteousness to live the way God wants them to live. Therefore, Timothy, I want you to teach, and I want you to instruct. I want you to correct, and I want you to train. Why? Because people will have a tendency to have itchy ears. And we will have a tendency to want to hear the things we want to hear and we will have a tendency to want to dismiss the things we don't like. Therefore, Timothy, we need to be faithful in the communication and the teaching of the Word so that the people of God have good foundations, good structures in their lives. Now, opinion. A lot of these Christians who slipped away And stepped out of faith? Opinion? I think they lost their identity with Jesus. Because they allowed other things to start to creep into their lives, and they allowed other things to start to speak more loudly in their lives. And those louder things had a louder voice for them, and because that louder voice spoke more loudly, they, started, they decided to step away from faith issues and embrace other things. Now, what are some of those things that speak loudly in our culture today? Oh, absolutely. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to get right down to the nitty-gritty of politics. Politics. Now, as we go into these things, I want to tell you, I'm not going to seek to step on toes, and I'm going to very much seek not to offend. But we need to have a conversation. We can't have major issues happening in our culture, but then say, but we're not going to talk about them. Now, this is not an attempt either, by the way, when we're going to start to have this conversation to try to persuade you to vote a personal, a specific way. Those of you that know me kind of know where I lean. But can I tell you something? A hundred people are not going to sway state politics and a hundred people are not going to sway national politics. But it's really important for a hundred people in this room to really ask what does it mean to reflect well the character and integrity of Christ and what does it really mean for me to process through who it is for me to be as a Christian as I express the freedoms and liberties God has given me as an American citizen. That's really important. Because one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for how we use the freedoms and liberties that God has given us. So I'm not thinking that we're going to sway the political world. But I do want you to stand before God with a clear conscience because you have learned what it means to wrestle with Scripture, to wrestle with your conscience, and then reflect that wrestling match with integrity as you push a lever or as you push a button. That is important for us. But if we're going to do that well, we need to have a real conversation about the reality of politics. Because politics has wreaked havoc in the church for years, by the way. It's not recent. It's wreaked havoc in the church for years. It's been dividing people. So, some churches say, if you're a Democrat, you can go to hell. Because you're not like us. And other churches will say, if you're a Republican, don't even darken our door. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear from you. You can also go to hell because we just don't agree. And you know the reality is? I don't see Jesus being interested in one side or the other as far as pulling the lever. I think there are underlying values and principles that we should apply, but I think Jesus is very interested in people on all sides of the spectrum putting their faith and trust in him. In fact, last I heard... There's lots of people in atheist countries and, and communist countries and, and dictatorships who've made decisions for Jesus. And they don't even have an R&D to pick from. So we need to have a conversation about the reality of politics and how politics has impacted the, the environment in the church and has in some ways made it toxic. We need to have a conversation about issues of Sexuality. Because in our culture today, there's been a major revolution that's taking place, and it's not just the sexual revolution of the 60s. We have all sorts of questions and all sorts of debate going on. We have questions about gender, and how many genders are there? Okay, no, no, no. You can have an opinion, and we probably might share a lot of that opinion, but the reality in our culture is that's a pretty big debate. And so what we need to be careful of is we just don't react in a negative way and kind of throw a stone. We need to have that foundation that underlines why we hold the position. And then we need to be gracious as we hold that position. But we also still don't need to have that conversation so that as we have that conversation, we have the foundations of why we believe what we believe so we can graciously communicate that without being judgmental and critical. But we have all sorts of questions that are surfacing in our culture today about about gender and, and, and how we're shaped and how we're defined. That conversation needs to take place. Questions about sexual orientation, that conversation needs to take place because that has permeated our cultural framework of thought. It's amazing to me how much we think about what takes place in a bedroom to define who we are. But that is our culture today. Now, that's not always a comfortable conversation, but I also got to come back and say we should be having conversations at times about this stuff in the church. It doesn't need to be stuff we talk about all the time, but it's rapidly impacting and affecting our culture. And every day, each of us is impacted by it. We need to have a conversation about hard questions in the Bible. There are some hard questions that exist in the Bible. They're not necessarily presented as questions. But they're presented as things that take place. So God says to the nation of Israel as they take the promised land, wipe them out. But then the whole debate comes up, but isn't God a loving God? And how could a loving God say to someone, wipe them out? How could a loving God do that? And people wrestle with that, and, and, and that's a real question. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Then there's one other thing, and Connor raised this last week and talked on this a little bit. People get hurt in the church. And we kind of look at the church at times, and we want the church to be a place of healing, and we want the church at times to be the place that's home. And we work hard to try to maintain and create that environment and encourage that environment. But as I've said to you guys before, and I've said this other times besides just here, I wrestled as a young man going into ministry. And I had a real wrestling match with God. Because in the church context I was shaped under, I recognized the church was filled with jerks. Just was. And I wrestled with God I said, God, you're going to make me put up with this garbage for the rest of my ministry life? For the rest of my career, I'm going to have to put up with this garbage? He said, yeah. Why? Because the reality is at different times, people do get hurt in the church. Things happen in the context of a church. Why? Because there's flawed people in the context of a church. There's flawed people that do flawed things. And sometimes it hurts. And sometimes because of that hurt, people say, done dealing with God, want nothing else to do with God, I'm walking away from God because people hurt me. And while some of that context is understandable, is that the best course of action to take? Now, I'm not trying to be flip but the reality is those are some of the things that do take place in our culture and these are some of the things that affect and speak into people's tension of do I stay connected in a relationship with Jesus or do I choose to walk away or do I choose never even to engage with Jesus I'm just going to cross it off my list and go on to the next thing fair enough Let's pray together. Father, I would ask that as we walk through things in these coming weeks, that you would just be glorified and honored in us and through us. And Father, the, the truth of the matter is these are some things that are tough and absolutely things that are not easy to always live with. Father, just give us patience, a willingness to engage a conversation with Out trying to have a lot of skin, per se, in the game. But being willing to be in a spot where we can listen, kind of process, and kind of look internally about how it is you want us to react and to interact with you, and how it is you want us to react and interact with your word, so that we can, to the best of our ability, walk well with you, and so that one day when we stand before you, we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Go before us, I ask, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
2: So, obviously in this series, we're going to be diving into some topics that will make the room so silent you can hear a pin drop. And what I'm going to encourage you to do, if you're not already in a life group, get in one. Let's not go through this series alone. In a life group, you can bring up questions you're wrestling with, uh, answers that are giving that you're struggling with. Get in a life group. In the bulletin, there's a list of all the life groups that are going on. In fact, I think there's a new one starting, I think, Wednesdays um, in the afternoon. But just look at that list Get in a life group. As we go through the series, write down questions you have. Bring them to the group. Uh, Christianity is not a religion where we encourage people to turn their brains off. We encourage questions and doubting and wrestling. So get in a life group if you're not one in one already. And I would also encourage you, if you're a believer or unbeliever, in, in your there's just lots of questions um, I would encourage you, talk to one of the elders, talk to Pastor Andrew, talk to myself. We would love to have conversations with things you're struggling with, wrestling with. You can even write in on the Connect card. Can we get together sometime? I, I am really struggling with some of the things um, that, that God's word says. Do that. Let's, let's go through this together and see what God's word has to say about some of the toughest topics that the entire world wrestles with. So. All that said, what we're going to do now is we're going to have offering to, for God to bless it and allow us to continue what we're doing here, but also for people all over the world, with the missionaries we support, so that they can hear God's word and what God's word has to say about these difficult topics. We're not the only ones wrestling through these things. People all over the world are. So as the offering plate goes from the back forward, Um, And as it passes you, let's stand up. Let's praise the great God who is just so far above and beyond any of the questions we can wrestle with. So let me pray. God, I thank you that your word steps into reality and it doesn't sidestep the tough questions. God, I have lots of questions about what your word says. Everyone here, everyone watching, even people that aren't here have lots of questions. It is hard and confusing, God. Thank you that you don't leave us guessing. I pray that everyone here this morning that we will deal with all these things honestly and openly and humbly. Give us the humility to submit to your word. Pray that you will use everything that your word talks about to strengthen our relationship with each other and with you. And I pray for everyone here that doesn't know you, be working in their hearts. Help them to dive into your word and see for themselves what you say. Thank you. Lord, I thank you for sending Jesus to save us so that if we trust in you one day, no more questions, no more doubting, no more wrestling. Thank you that all the confusion will one day be over. Thank you, Lord, in your name, amen.